You can turn your Bibles over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We've been looking through the book of uh, Romans, and we've noticed in Romans chapter 5 the results of our righteousness. And that righteousness is only ours because we've been justified. Uh, We don't have any righteousness of our own to speak of. But our text this morning continues along that theme, the results of being made righteous by God through justification, which which was possible by the death of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to read this morning Romans chapter 5. And I want to begin, uh, pick up there in verse uh, 5 this morning. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for the righteous person, for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, last week, we looked at the previous verses there, and they talked about exalting in our trials. And we looked at three points. To exalt in trials, develop and maintain God's perspective that he's using those trials in our lives to shape us, to shape our character, prepare us for heaven. And then secondly, we looked at the point that said to exalt in trials, we must keep in mind that trials do not nullify God's great love for us. And so this morning, I want to take a little further look at the love of God. We sang some songs about it uh, this morning. Uh, I'm reminded of an illustration. Back in 1861, there was a wild uh, gambler of a man. He was a drinker. His name was Henry Morehouse. Harry Morehouse, excuse me. And he ran into a revival meeting over in Manchester, England. And he had had quite a few to drink. And he was looking basically to beat up somebody. That's the kind of guy he was. He's just looking for somebody to push around, bully. But instead he got saved. Six years later, the famous evangelist, you've heard of him, D.L. Moody, was preaching in Dublin when Morehouse came up to him after the service. And he told Moody, I want to come to America and preach the gospel. Well, Moody kind of looked at him and guessed maybe his age was about 17. He was older than that, but he he looked like a little kid. And he didn't know Morehouse from anybody else, and he didn't know if he could preach. So he just kind of pushed him aside, brushed him aside, and said, well, that's nice, and went on with his day. Well, after Moody got back to Chicago, he got a letter from Harry Morehouse. And Morehouse said that he had landed in New York, and he was willing to come and preach. 
And Moody at this point thought, oh no, what do I do now? So he wrote kind of a cold reply to this gentleman, saying that, well, you know, in the end, if you you do make it out my way here uh, in Chicago, uh, look me up. But I probably won't be available. Moody didn't know what to to do with him, and a few days later, he got a letter saying that Morehouse would be in Chicago the next Thursday. (laughs) So he told his deacons, okay, this guy's coming into town. He's from England. He wants to preach. I'm going to be gone Thursday and Friday, and uh, I would ask that you let him preach those two days. I'll be back Saturday, and I'll take him off your hands. Well, on Saturday... Moody returned, and he asked his wife, well, how did this young Englishman do? Did the people like him? And his wife replied, yeah, actually, they liked him very much. Well, did you like him? Yes, I I liked his preaching very much. He preached two sermons from John 3.16. And you know what? I think that you'll really like this young man. But you know what? He preaches a little different than you. Well, how is that? Moody asked. Well, he tells sinners that God loves them. Well, he's wrong, Moody replied. Moody went to hear him that night, determined that he would not like him. But that first night, as Morehouse preached again from John 3.16, on the great love of God for sinners, Moody's heart began to thaw out. And he could not hold back the tears. For seven nights in a row, Harry Morehouse preached to a crowded church there in Chicago on John 3.16. The final night, Morehouse concluded his sermon by saying this, My friends, for a whole week, I've been trying to tell you about how much God loves you. But I cannot do it with this poor, stammering tongue. If I could borrow Jacob's ladder and climb up into heaven and ask Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Almighty, if he could tell me how much love the Father has for the world, all he could say would be, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, those sermons changed D.L. Moody's heart. They changed his life. He said this, I've never forgotten those nights. I've preached a different gospel since then, and I have had more power with God and man since then. Romans Chapter 5, verses 5 and actually verse 8, is really the John 3.16 in Romans. Even though Romans was written before John. But it's important to understand that God demonstrates his love toward us, it says, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us there in verse 8. Paul wanted us to know. He wanted us to experience in a deeper way the truth that we see in verse 5. And we just touched on that last week. That the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. 
Now, in verses 6 to 8, Paul explains a little further. Verse 6 starts off with that little word for. So he's kind of continuing his dialogue here. He's giving an explanation for the life-changing truth of God's great love for sinners. And in doing so, he's trying to show us why our hope of heaven will not disappoint us. And we've seen in the previous weeks that we've been justified by faith. And as a result of that, we have peace with God, verse 1 of chapter 5. We have access into God's grace, chapter 2, or verse 2 of chapter 5. And then we have the hope of glory of God, eventually, verse 2. And then it says we can even have joy in our trials. And we know that God is using them, in verses 3 and 4, to kind of change our character through perseverance. And the thing that holds our anchor sure, beloved, is what that verse 5 says, the outpouring of God's love within our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. We sang a wonderful hymn this morning, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Have you ever thought about the faithfulness of God? I mean, only God is the God who is faithful. He keeps every promise to the full. Everything we believe stands on the faithfulness of God. Our eternal destiny is at stake. I mean, when you look at the world around you and you see all the unfaithfulness going on, it's no wonder that people doubt the faithfulness of God. But I want to share with you, before we even get into our text, a little bit of what Scripture says about the faithfulness of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, the Scripture says, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, He is God, the faithful God. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Isaiah eleven five. Faithfulness is the belt around God's waist. Faithfulness encompasses God. He holds him. All of his attributes in the one place. It's like a belt, it says in Isaiah 11, 5. Psalm 36, 5 says, Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness, faithfulness reaches unto the clouds. Psalm 35 or 36.5. Lamentations 3.23, which the, the hymn comes from, Great is thy faithfulness. Hebrews 10.23 in the New Testament says, He is faithful that promised. Now, God's faithfulness stands out because we look around us and we see so much unfaithfulness. And it's that faithfulness of God that secures our salvation. I don't know about you, but aren't you glad that your salvation isn't left up to you? Aren't you glad that you don't have to keep yourself saved? Good Lord, I'd be lost as soon as I was saved if that were the case. There's no way. It'd be impossible. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 with me just quickly here. 1 Thessalonians. You can turn to your right in your Bibles there and you'll find it eventually. Chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, look at 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you partially. No, it says completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, he who calls you is what? 
faithful, he will surely do it. That's a verse of encouragement for us who believe in the work of Christ. Philippians 1.6, we've looked at this verse before. Be confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will what? Complete it until the day of Christ. He'll, he'll complete it. He'll perform it. It's God that does the work. And so when we stop and we go back to Romans chapter 5 and we see here that in verse 1 he talks about those who basically have been justified by faith and because of that we have our peace with God. And then verse 2 he talks about the grace that we stand in securely. And then he talks about the hope of glory that we can look forward to. We rejoice in the hope of glory. It's a sure thing. It's not something that 50-50, it may or may not happen. No, it's a guaranteed thing. Remember, the idea of salvation encompasses all of time. In the past, God chose us before the foundation of the world to be saved. That's what the Bible says. I don't understand that, but that's what it says. Presently, we're being saved each day. Through the process of sanctification, God is, through his spirit, kind of taking off the rough edges. We're becoming more and more like Christ. And ultimately, we shall be saved. We will be made like Christ. We will partake of that glory of God and glory one day. And he wants us to understand that our hope of heaven is not something that's speculative. It's something that's sure. And so today I want to talk to you about our hope of heaven that it's secure because it's not based on, it is based on God's love that sent Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. Our hope of heaven is secure because it is based on God's love that sent Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. In other words, God's love of us is not based on us cleaning up our act. Or getting our stuff together. You hear people are finding yourself or whatever you want to use. You hear people use those terms and it's just like, what are you talking about? It's not based on some track record of performance. Oh, I see you've been to church four times this month. Boy, boy, you're, yeah, you're, I'll definitely save you. Doesn't work that way. Rather, we're saved. It's based The security of our salvation is based on God's love. Because 1 John chapter 4 verse 7 tells us that God is what? Love. He is love. Exodus 34 6 tells us that God is gracious. So he extends his love and grace to sinners. People that don't deserve it. Apart from and in spite of anything in them. That brings us to our first point. Our hope of heaven is secure because it's not based on any good in us. It's not based on any good in us. He uses the text in Romans 5 and he talks here of a series of, you might say, synonyms. He talks about how we were helpless in verse 6. How we're ungodly in verse 6. In verse 8, he refers to us as sinners. And then all the way down in verse 10, he talks about us being enemies with God. 
And so I think the first thing we need to do to appreciate God's great love, we have to feel our own great need for a Savior. That's the first step. If you want to take a baby step in salvation, the first step you have to realize is, you know what? I need salvation. I need a Savior. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. In order to measure the love of God, you have to first go down before you can go up. You do not start on the, on the level and go up. We have been brought up from a dungeon, from a horrible pit. And unless you know something of the measure of that depth, you will only be measuring half of the love of God. Look over at Luke chapter 7. Because there's a little story here that Jesus tells us. A little illustration that kind of illustrates this for us. Luke chapter 7. Jesus here went to eat dinner in the house of Simon, the Pharisee. And you see here in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, you have this, you know, you've got to picture the scene. You have Simon, this very religious person. And he takes great pride in observing all the religious traditions and things like that. He's never eaten unclean food. He tithes meticulously. He keeps all the commandments of Moses. He kept his distance from all the notorious sinners out there in the community, so he was not corrupted. He wanted to find out if this upstart, this uneducated rabbi from Galilee, was legitimate. And so he invited him over for dinner. And it says there in verse 36 of Luke 7, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair the hair on her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. See, and they believed you shouldn't have even do with sinners. You keep him at arm's length at best. And Jesus, answering, said to Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, well, say it, rabbi or teacher. Verse 41, a certain money lender had two debtors. So Jesus begins to give this illustration. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will... Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, verse 43, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. You're right. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. 
You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who sat at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Incredible illustration of the love of God. Now, Simon, even though he was religiously righteous in his own mind, he was basically rude to Jesus. Jesus came to his house. He says, you didn't give me a water. You didn't help me wipe my feet. You didn't do anything. It'd be like having somebody over and just, you know, not asking them, do you want anything to eat? You know, use the restroom, anything, you know. If you just didn't do any of that, that would be kind of rude to your house guests. And the point was that Simon didn't realize how much he needed God's forgiveness. And so he didn't love Jesus as much as this woman who knew her great need for a Savior. Now, some of you may have grown up in a Christian home. You never got into much trouble growing up. Well, I'm here to tell you, you're probably more prone to be like Simon than you are the prostitute. If you want to know and experience the great love of God in Christ, you have to see the awful depths from which you come. You have to look honestly at your own heart and realize the sin that lurks there. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, It is to the extent to which we realize our inability and incapacity that we realize the love of God. We don't deserve it. We don't understand it. We have no ability to save ourselves. We're incapable of doing so. And Paul shows us our inability in these verses. Well, secondly, we greatly need the Savior because we were helpless, ungodly sinners and enemies with God. Back to Romans 5. He uses those terms. That's what he calls them. He doesn't really uh, make any bones about it. He's pretty straight shooter, Paul is. He doesn't mumble his words. And he starts right off there in, in verse If you look at at, uh, chapter uh, 5, verse 6, he says, While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for us. Died for the ungodly. We were helpless. We were weak. It means we were incapable of working out any righteousness for ourselves. It means total incapacity for good. The want of all moral life, such as is healthy and fruitful in good words, we were incapable of doing that. Lloyd-Jones says this, it means this, total inability in a spiritual sense. So what we see, what the Bible says here, that we were helpless, our spiritual condition was helpless outside of Christ. And that's what the Bible says. Ephesians 2, chapter, one, or chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says that we were dead. <laughs> you can't get any more helpless than that. 
don't know if you've been around many dead people. I have, unfortunately, at times. And I've never turned to a dead person and said, hey, give me a hand here. What do you, you know, I've never done that. Why? Because they're not going to do anything. They're totally unable to help me. They're dead. There's no life in them. The Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked. What did we need? We didn't need a makeover. We didn't need a redo. We didn't need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We needed God to raise us what? From the dead. That's what we needed. We're unable to save ourselves, beloved. That's what Jesus told MacArthur's on the radio. I think he's been teaching on Nicodemus, I think last week maybe. But uh, incredible series of messages. If you've never heard him, look him up on the web and, and read about Nicodemus. John chapter 3. And when, God, when Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, Nicodemus was about as religious as you could get. But all that religion couldn't get him into the kingdom of God. He still needed a new birth. He still needed to be, as Jesus said, born again. What did you do at your birth? How do you help? What was your contribution? Do you help mom push? You tap on her belly and say, hey, it's time. Call the doctor. No. You had absolutely nothing to do with your birth. Nothing at all. And just as we could not produce our own natural birth by our own efforts or our own willpower... When you relate to the spiritual realm, it has to be an act of God. You can't save yourself. We're not able to see the light of the gospel to be saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We're not able to understand spiritual truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, But the natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Well, what can we do then? God has to open our eyes to understand the gospel. We're not even able to hear God's truth. Do you understand that? In John chapter 8, verse 43, if you look at that verse real quick, John 8, 43, Jesus was asking the Jews, they were constantly challenging him, challenging his teaching. And so he asked them, why do you not understand what I'm saying? Have you ever talked to somebody and you're trying to explain something and they're just not getting it? And eventually you go, okay, (laughs) am I speaking another language? What don't you understand? That's how Jesus felt. What aren't you getting here? And he answered his own question, because they couldn't. And in verse 43, he says, It is because you cannot hear my word. Wow. They lacked spiritual ears to hear. John fourteen six. 
They weren't seeking God. In Romans chapter 3, we saw that, verse 11. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God, not one. We're not able to submit to God's law to please Him. We can't look at God's law and say, okay, I'm going to do the Ten Commandments and I'm going to keep them and that will get me to heaven. It doesn't work that way. In Romans 8, when we get to that in verses 7 and 8, it says this, the mind set on the flesh is actually hostile toward God. It's hostile. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Wow. We're going to come back to that in a second. So when Paul says we were helpless, we're still helpless, we're weak, he means you were totally weak. It wasn't like, you know, 50-50, 65, you know, it wasn't. It was, you were totally burned out. You're unwilling to do anything to bring about reconciliation with God. But you know what? He doesn't stop there. Gracious man that he is, he continues down this path. Not only are you weak and helpless, he says in verse 6, for Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly. That word takes us all the way back to verse 18 of chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What's it mean to be ungodly? This isn't rocket science. It means to be unlike God. That's what it means. What is God like? God is holy. He's apart from all sin. Well, to be ungodly means that our ways are not God's ways. Our thoughts are not His thoughts, as Isaiah 55, 89 points out. There's a Humanly uncrossable canyon between us and God. Between that, between those who are ungodly and that which is holy, which is God. So he says we're helpless, weak, we're ungodly. Thirdly, he says we're sinners. Verse 8, while we were yet sinners. And once again, this is kind of review in a lot of ways because verse 23 of chapter 3 of Romans, he said the same thing. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the essence of sin. The essence of sin is to fall short of God's glory. We did not live for his glory. We had no concern for his glory. Rather, who do we live for? Ourselves. Who do we care about? Ourselves. pretty clear. But he doesn't stop there. (laughs) It's like, come on, Paul. All right, man. You keep on piling this on top of us. Give us a break. We're helpless. We're ungodly. We're sinners. And then all the way down in verse 10, and we'll get to this next week, but I just wanted to mention it. We're called God's enemies. We're described as God's enemies. Verse 7 says we're hostile of, of uh, Romans 8, says we were hostile toward God, alienated from Him. We opposed His lordship in our lives. We didn't want Him to rule over us. Now, 
you're probably thinking, this is kind of depressing. <laughs> this is not good news. This is kind of taking some points off my self-esteem here, Pastor. Maybe we should change the message a little bit. I mean, I didn't come to church to walk out with my head hanging down going, whoa, man, there's no hope for me. See, but if you don't see the depths of your sin from which God has rescued you or needs to rescue you, you won't appreciate his great love. I mean, it's not like Christ and God were up in heaven and they looked down and said, oh, that person, I have to have him on my team. Boy, look at, look at his life and look at what he does and look at this and look at that. Oh, oh look at her. I mean, she's just wonderful, reaches out to people, so loving. I, I have to save that person. No, that's not how it worked. He came to die for our sins in order that he would reconcile you to God. He didn't come to die so you could feel good about yourself. That's not the purpose. If you don't see yourself as helpless, if you don't see yourself as ungodly, if you don't see yourself as a sinner and an enemy of God, then frankly, you won't see your need for a Savior. And you'll never have assurance about your hope of heaven because you're based that hope on all your own goodness and your own merit. Our hope of heaven can only be secure if it is not based on anything good in us because there's nothing there to be good to find. Well, secondly, not only is our, our hope in heaven secure because it is not based on anything good in us, but secondly, our hope of heaven is secure Because it is based on God's gracious love for us while we were yet still sinners. That's what Romans 5, 8 says. God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. What happens when you become a Christian? What does God do? He gives you what? Life? Gives you the Holy Spirit, right? He gives you the Holy Spirit of God He deposits it inside you. In a letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he called it a down payment. It means kind of an engagement ring, a guarantee. In other words, when you became a Christian, God gave you a guarantee of your salvation. A guarantee of your ultimate glory. A guarantee of your ultimate salvation. A guarantee of heaven. A guarantee that you would persevere. A guarantee that the salvation that you're putting your hope and faith in is secure. It's secure with God. How do we know that? Because He gave you a deposit of the Holy Spirit that lives within you. That happens the moment you put your faith, your trust in Christ. The moment you cry out to God and say, I need a Savior. I am lost. Be merciful to me, a sinner. 
If that comes from a sincere heart, God will answer that prayer and he'll save you. In the moment you're saved, you have the power of God through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. You don't have to pray for it. You don't have to seek it. You don't have to go to church for it or go to some other meeting, afterglow meeting or something, hoping maybe the Spirit will fall. No. God gives it to you the moment you're saved. And he gives it to you in its entirety. We don't have... Second-rate Christians. Some theologians teach, some churches teach, some denominations teach. Well, you become a Christian, but then you have to be filled with the Spirit. And to get filled with the Spirit, you come to this little meeting after our service tonight, and, and you know, we'll play some music, and, boy, we'll have some people doing some real weird things. But, you know, then, then if you ask God long enough and hard enough, eventually He'll fill you with the Spirit. That's incorrect theology. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he gives you that as a deposit the moment you put your faith, your trust in him. One of the hymns that we sing, there is a a fountain. One of the verses says this, Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be till I die. What's the most overwhelming concept of Christianity? It's the fact that God loves us. It's the fact that God loved us even when we were still sinners. And it speaks of that love in a personal, internal, intimate way. It's not like God saying, oh yeah, yeah I love you, now get out, of my, get out of my way. I got stuff to do. No! He is within you. He dwells within you through the power of the Spirit. And that's why in Romans 5, verse 5, he says, why does hope not disappoint or why is hope not put a shame? In verse 5, he says, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit himself. It's not just intellectual. It even enters into the area of emotional. It's not so much objective now, but it's more subjective. It's like, well, what does this do for you? Over in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, Paul writes, As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Ask yourself this question. Have you ever been led by the Spirit of God? Have you ever done anything, been led to do something for the glory of God? If you have, it's the Spirit of God leading you. If you've ever been led to a kind of an intense study of God's Word or maybe to help somebody out or whatever, it's the Spirit of God leading you. Romans 8, verse 15 says that we can cry out, Abba, Father. Daddy, in other words. Going through a study on prayer on Wednesday nights. One, one of the things we learned last week was it's a very intimate relationship we have with God. It's like a little kid climbing up on his father's lap and saying, Hey, Daddy. That's our relationship with God if we know him through the Lord Jesus Christ. See, as a believer in Christ, all those feelings, all that objective facts and everything is real to us. 
Unfortunately, unbelievers feel none of that. The unregenerate individual has no love for God. They see no intimacy with God at all. They have no real sense of any communication with God. But those of us who know Christ, God has given us His Spirit, and He sends His Spirit in us to draw out that intimate love relationship that we have with God Himself. You know, when you come down to it, Romans 5 is, is kind of one big treatise on the security of the believer. That's really what we're talking about. When you're secure in Christ, you have peace. Why? Because you stand in God's grace. Okay, well, what does that motivate you to do? It hope for the glory of God. How can you rejoice in suffering? Because you know that God is secure. He's going to hold you through all these things. And ultimately, he's going to make you ready for heaven. And when he says there in verse 5, someone asked me this last week, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Please understand, this is not talking about our love for God. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about what? God's love for us. How do you know that? I mean, look at verse 8. God commanded his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's talking about God's love for us, not our love for God. And so the truth is that the love of God through the Holy Spirit has been deposited in our hearts. You say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it has a lot to do with everything. (laughs) We can know those factual things that, oh yeah, as a believer, the Holy Spirit's in my life, I understand that. But if you want to get real practical, you you look at the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 22, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit, and please, I'm reminding you again, it's not the fruits of the Spirit, plural, it's the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. This isn't a cornucopia of God's fruits that you get to pick. Oh, today I think I'm going to be gracious. Oh, I think I'll be loving today. No. Either you got it all or you don't have any of it. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace. It goes on and on and on. But you know what? If you're living a life, even as a believer, of disobedience, what are you doing? You're quenching the Spirit of God. If you're living a life of unrighteousness by unconfessed sin, by disobeying the Spirit of God and of Christ, you will cause the Spirit to bear no fruit in your life. You will hinder that operation. And what you will lose in the ultimate end is a sense of God's love. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. I love the epistles of Paul because he he basically follows the same pattern every time. He starts off with a bunch of doctrine and then he gets to the practical. That's what he does. Ephesians chapter 3, look at verse 13. Or excuse me, uh, 
Verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before what? The Father. So Paul's going to pray. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit, it says, in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is, listen, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. And to know your love for God. Oh, wait, it doesn't say that. It says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Whose love are we talking about? Not your love for God. We're talking about God's love for you. It's exactly what Romans 5 is talking about. That's exactly what was shed abroad in our hearts. God's love for us. Well, you say if it's shed abroad in our hearts, then why does Paul have to pray for it? It's shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And here we learn that if we're not strengthened with the might of His Spirit, we will not fully comprehend His love. That's why a lot of Christians who walk in daily disobedience before God in sinful patterns, whether thought or deed or whatever, Christians who are living unrighteous lives, they don't have a sense of security in their lives. They don't have a sense that God still loves them. No, what do they have a sense of? Guilt. They're riddled with guilt. I mean, they can say, hey, I understand technically I'm supposed to have peace with God, but you know what? There's no peace in this heart. And yeah, you know, I get the idea we're supposed to be standing in the grace of God and I have the hope of glory. But when you are honest and and they're honest with you, they'll tell you there's none of that in their lives. Because they're living in disobedience. And so the Lord has given us this internal witness by the Holy Spirit. And we need to live our lives according to that. That's why over in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, verse 17, or verse 15, actually, I keep on going back, sorry, verse 15, look carefully then how you walk or how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. You ever wake up in the morning and say, man, I hope I do a lot of unwise things today. Just a lot of foolishness. I just want it to fill my life. No, that's insanity. You would want to make wise choices. Verse 16, making the best use of my time. Because the days are evil. I mean, you can say a lot about that. Stop and think of all the things that are going on. See people's heads getting cut off and all kind of things. People put in prison for their faith. Little children being slaughtered. Because they won't pay homage to a certain God. All the drugs and Alcohol and sexual sin that's just permeated our world. I don't know about you, but you know, if the Lord would come back tomorrow, I'd say amen. 
I mean, I can't wait to get out of this cesspool called a world. I'm tired of dealing with the flesh. I'm tired of dealing with sin. I, you know, I just want to be in the presence of my Lord and Savior. Don't have to deal with all this stuff. But he says, you know what? You better walk carefully. And you better make the most use of your time. Why? Because the days are evil. You can't argue that. Look around. And so he says, therefore, do not be foolish, verse 17, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Once again, this is not rocket science. God does not play games with his children. He doesn't say, okay, I saved you. Now, for the next 10 years of your life, you're going to have to go out there and scurry around and look for my will for your life. And maybe you're lucky if you find it. And I'm just going to sit up here in heaven and grin and watch you squirm. That's not the kind of God we serve. He doesn't play hide and seek with his will. He gives us his will right here in his word. He reveals it to us. We can understand it. The verse goes on. Verse 18. He says, don't get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. That's not right. What happens when you get drunk? Alcohol controls you. It's an outside influence. This summer, I took a little confession here. This summer, I took the kids to to Hawaii for uh, it was just me and the grandkids because uh, Ambika had had gone to to see her family. I think, yeah, in Trinidad. And so I was going to Hawaii and, and taking them as they moved there. And on the way back, I was by myself on the plane. And because I had some air miles with Alaska. I got this little thing that said I could upgrade to first class. Well, I've never flown first class before in my life. And it was only 100 bucks. So I did the math. Okay, I can pay $35 a piece for bags, all right? Or I can upgrade to first class for 100 bucks and get the bags free. So I thought, I'm doing 100 bucks. So I called my wife, said, hey, I'm flying first class. Great. So we get there in the plane, pretty nice seats and everything. And I'm just sitting there looking around and seeing what's going on. And it's kind of hot. Scurrying to the airplane, I'm sitting there, and the lady walks by, waitress walks over. Oh, would you like something to drink? It's like, sure. Well, down to about three-quarters of a glass of this orange-looking drink. Kind of had some bubbles in it. And I was like, hmm, this is pretty good stuff. <laughs> and for somebody that doesn't drink alcohol, I'll tell you what, it was a shot in the arm for me. <laughs> and I'm texting my daughter, and I said, man, I... I don't know what I just drank, but I said it was like orange juice, but it was kind of bubbly. She goes, you idiot. It was, what's he call it? Mimosa or whatever. It had champagne in it. I said, oh, well, praise God for his grace, you know. She came around. Oh, you drank it all. Do you want another one? I said, no, no, no. I'll just have a Coke. Thank you very much. Man, I was half wiped out there from a simple glass. You know, and that's what alcohol does to you. It controls you. It affects your mind. And so he says, don't allow that to happen, but be what? Be controlled. Be filled with the Spirit. So we need to be remindful of that. That God wants us, we can go back to Romans 5, that God wants us to live out this life that he's carved out for us in Christ And we can't do it in the flesh. We have to do it under the control of the Holy Spirit, which he gave to us. He literally gave us the power of the Spirit. He gave us that internal witness. 
You have to stop and ask yourself, are you living a life that's yielding to the Spirit of God? Are you living a life that's yielding to the flesh? Well, real quickly here, God's gracious love took the initiative to save us from our helplessness, ungodly condition. And that's what these verses show us. They show us that salvation is totally from God. There was nothing in us that was lovable. There was nothing that motivated God somehow that by our own nature to look at us. In, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, uh, basically 3 to 10, I think it is, there's a picture of Israel. And it describes it this way. They were kind of like an unwanted newborn infant thrown into a field, and it says, squirming in their blood, like a piece of garbage about to die. And that's what God did for us. He took us. He bathed us with water. He anointed us with oil. He wrapped us in fine garments. See, salvation comes from this great love of God. God's gracious love for us is far higher than any example of human love. And that's what verse 7 says here. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to die. Some theologians say, oh, he's making a point here that there's two different kinds of people, the righteous man and the good. No, they're, they're synonyms. They're the same person. He's just making the same point over. It's like he starts to thought, oh, hey, one will hardly die for a righteous man. Well, maybe a couple good people out there somebody would die for. But who would take to offer their life for a scoundrel, a sinner, someone who deserves to die? Who would step up to the plane and say, wait, 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 don't shoot, shoot uh, uh, Osama bin Laden in the head. Here, shoot me instead. I'll give my life for his. That would be bizarre. You wouldn't do that. But that's exactly, really, what God did. Jesus would do that. He died for only one type of person. He only died for one type of person. He died for those who were ungodly sinners. None of us deserved what Jesus in love did for us. None of us. Thirdly, God's gracious love for us sent none other than Christ. This is what he says. At the right time, who died? Christ died for us. It was his beloved son in whom he was well pleased. It was him who was the eternal word, the one who was with God, who was God, who created all things, John 1.1 1, 1 says. He is the one, Hebrews 1.3, that says is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, who upholds all things by the power of the word of his power. He is the one whom angels of God worship, whose throne is forever who laid the foundations of the earth and made the heavens, whose years will never come to an end, Hebrews 1, 6-12. Paul says that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that Christ died for us. 
You say, well, okay, if Christ is dying for us, doesn't that demonstrate Christ's love for us? Why would it, you say it would demonstrate God's love for us? Because Jesus and God the Father are one, John 10, 30. Leon Morris says this in one of his commentaries. He says, unless there is a sense in which the Father and Christ are one, it is not the love of God that the cross shows, but because Christ is one with God, Paul can speak of the cross as a demonstration of the love of God. See, on the cross, beloved, Christ didn't die to persuade an angry God of the Old Testament to love us. Some people believe that. That's not what he did. The Father and the Son were one in their love as they divined the plan of salvation for guilty sinners in eternity past. The fact that it required the death of the eternal Son of God should cause us to bow and love and wonder. And then fourthly, God's gracious love sent Christ, it says, at the right time. When we go through and we share our testimonies, Every one of us was saved at the right time. Just like all of us are going to die at the right time. Nobody dies at a wrong time in the plan of God. We all die at the right time. And we're all saved at the right time. Leon Morris goes on, he says this, Two ways of looking at the time of Christ's death are combined here. He died at a time when we were still sinners and at a time that fitted God's purpose. The second way emphasizes that the atonement was no afterthought. This was the way God always intended to deal with sin. He did it when he chose. So in the grand scheme of all the ages, Christ's death was right on schedule. Wasn't premature. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And there's other verses that point out that certain people tried to take Christ's life prematurely, and he said, Nope, it's not time yet. Spurgeon said this, You've got to stand before God, convicted and condemned, with the rope around your neck so that you will weep for joy when God at the right time sends Christ into your life as your Savior. Well, God's gracious love sent Christ to die for us. It's a prominent word there, the word die. It occurs once in verse 6, twice in verse 7, and once again in verse 8. Romans 6.23 tells us, The wages of sin is death. Christ had to pay a penalty for our sins. He was our sin bearer. He was our substitute. He bore the the punishment that we deserved. Next week we'll be having communion together. That's what that's all about. It's recognizing the work that Christ has done on our behalf. The just for the unjust. So that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 I mean, Jesus Christ is our great example of how to live. He is that. But his example does not save us. While he's our great teacher, his teaching does not save us. His death, 
as our substitute, bore the penalty of God's justice. Jesus alone can save us. And he does it through his death. The Bible says Christ died for the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Last point quickly. If we were helpless, ungodly sinners in need of Christ's death to save us, then salvation cannot in any sense be due to human merit, works, or righteousness. This is good news. Because if we don't have anything to do with our salvation, I don't think we can have anything to do with our undoing of our salvation. We don't believe in a works-based salvation, beloved. Charles Hodge put it this way. If he loved us because we loved him, he would love us only so long as we love him. And on that condition, and then our salvation would depend on the constancy of our treacherous hearts. But as God loved us as sinners, as Christ died for us as ungodly, our salvation depends, as the apostle argues, not on our loveliness, but on the consistency of the love of God. That's wonderful news. And we should be glorifying God for that. Years ago, there was a, there's, you've probably heard of Karl Barth. He was a Swiss theologian, pretty liberal, but I think he got this one right. He was at a question and answer with a bunch of students, and someone asked him this, Dr. Barth, what is the greatest thought that has ever gone through your mind? And he had a great mind. He was brilliant. The questioner probably expected some deep, incomprehensible answer as if someone asked Einstein to explain this theory of relativity. Barth thought about the question for a while, and then he replied this. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that Your love for us is not something that we deserve. Your love for us is not something that we can even comprehend. But your love for us is real. Your love for us is a love that saves us from our utter destruction in hell. Judgment in hell. And Father, we pray that if there's any here this morning who is yet to grab a hold of and personalize that love in any way, Lord, that somehow you would save them. Because we know by your word there's nothing we can do to be saved. Clearly. It's only by your grace. We pray that you would extend your grace to them. That you would show them the depravity of their sin. That you would show them the muck and the mire that they're They're seeped in, and and only you could pull them out. Father, I pray that you would give them the desire they need to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Let that be the cry of their heart. That you would gloriously save them for your glory. Father, for us believers, I pray that we would look at our lives each and every day. Are we controlled by the flesh? Are we controlled by the Spirit? Are we short circuiting your work in our lives by doing our own thing day after day? Thinking our own thoughts? Having our own agenda? 
Or are we being filled with your spirit each day? Are we coming to you fresh saying, God, control me today. Father, you're, you're good. Help me today. That's a prayer that God will answer. It's a prayer that God will use in your life to draw you more and more and more into his presence. As he makes you more and more like Christ. And the rough edges are chipped away. The joy and the security of your salvation will be more consistent, more real than it ever has been before. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would bless the remainder of our day. Give us a good week, a week that honors you in every way. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.